we're taking you on a food and drink journey from coast to coast. It's Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. From the Grand Central Market in downtown Los Angeles, here's your host, Alex Stone. Welcome to the heart of the foodie scene in LA, a great big food hall that's been here since 1917, a European style smorgasbord of food stalls at the Grand Central Market. We're right down from City Hall. You want Chinese food? There's a stall for that here. Mexican food? Yep, lots of that. A Filipino rice bowl? No problem. Some of the best oysters in LA. Bingo right here. The smells are incredible. There are spice stalls, there's produce here. There is not a better place to kick off talking about food this time of the year than in this kingdom of all things that touch your taste buds. I'm here to meet up with famed chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. You may have eaten his food at some of the most popular restaurants he has in New York, Orlando, Washington, Las Vegas, Chicago, LA, and elsewhere. He is an icon in the world of food. And at this point, probably at this point, is the right moment to add some salt. Or maybe you know him from one of his many books or being named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People twice. Or his cooking show that used to run on TV. Yes, we can make a great dessert. Where he taught all of us how to cook. Not as well as he does, of course. His restaurants have Michelin stars. Clementines that easy to peel, great to eat. And while he's still making big headlines in the restaurant world in the last couple of months, bringing new food experiences to L.A., like the Latin-inspired San Laurel restaurant, which just opened, and a beach club vibe, Agua Viva restaurant, and a rooftop bar coming next year, he's becoming even better known for his work saving lives. Yes, saving lives. How can we help with food, water, or whatever else? Around the world, Andres' nonprofit World Central Kitchen is doing what governments are often unable to do in the days and months after a disaster, feeding their people. World Central Kitchen has turned into a massive endeavor, flying in and serving hot meals to those who are suffering. Andres is on the ground for much of it. Hello, people of America, people of the world. Today, big news. 21 days in this beautiful island of Puerto Rico, and I can tell you, World Central Kitchen chefs of Puerto Rico initiative. We are about to reach today one million meals cooked by the men and women of Puerto Rico. Big day. I love you all. Absolutely incredible amounts of rice, fruit, bread is moved into hurricane, earthquake, volcano, tornado, flood, wildfire, famine, virus, and war zones to help keep people alive. Initially, much of the money came from Andres himself. World Central Kitchen started when Andre saw humanity was suffering after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, and he hasn't stopped since. Most recently, feeding families impacted by the war in Ukraine, surrounded by war, cooking hot food. What's the name of this? And what is the ingredient? Is that cold soup? He's often in the heart of the storm, such the heart of it, you can barely hear his voice battered by wind in this video he posted. It was Hurricane Maria in 2017 that devastated Puerto Rico and Andre saw just what World Central Kitchen could become. Nearly going into debt to do it and stressing himself physically and mentally to the max, his teams organized 20,000 volunteers in every kitchen they could find to make 3.7 million meals. So guys, today... It's been a big day. His model is one governments are now trying to imitate, using local cooks to make local food that people in the area actually want to eat. 
That model is now saving lives around the world, led by Andres, making deals to shuttle food to places where it's needed most, whether it's Mumbai, Florida, or Kiev. So we're here inside one of the train wagons uh, delivering uh, now uh, food um, to different parts. We got we got boots on the ground. We were able to meet the guys, and this is um, the guys that control all the railroads. And that's why in this show, as we celebrate food and the community around food, I was so excited that Chef Andres agreed to meet up in the loud Grand Central Market to talk about World Central Kitchen. Thank you for having me. Andres was in L.A. to work on his new restaurants only in town for a day before heading back to Washington, D.C. And my first question to Chef Andres what is food? We all know on the surface what it is. We eat it every day. But for the work he is doing, what is food to him? I think we all uh, forgot the big powerful moment we all experience through food. In the first seconds, minutes after we born, that the first tangible uh, that we receive that sends a message of love, of care, of you will never walk alone is when we come to the wall and our mothers uh, bring us close to their body and feed us. Uh, or somebody feeds us. If that moment is not possible, more skin to skin. That mother's milk, that first moment of love through food is something that penetrates every cell of our bodies, gets in our DNA and forever we are attached for food in ways we don't even imagine. That's why food is always the way we celebrate with the people we love. It's the way we show respect to the people we don't know by inviting them to our universe, to our world, to our table. That's the moment that food forever becomes part of who we are. Do you think most people understand that? Or do they take food for granted? That it is on every street corner until you really need it? Until there is a disaster or a famine or something like that. Do people understand that? We could argue in more ways than one that uh, when we talk about the most important things that impact the world, seems defense is always on the table, energy is always off the table, and, and seems food is always like an afterthought. I will argue that we can put food in the middle of the table and start seeing how food is connected to everything. Food is immigration without Unfortunately, millions of undocumented immigrants we have in America, uh, it's a lot of things wouldn't be in the, in the supermarkets and in the tables of every American family. Food is health, uh, food is pop culture, food is science, food is energy. Right now, some prices are very high because some grains, they are fighting to be food for animals, food for people, or, or food for creating uh, energy. Food is always an afterthought. Even when we hear our leaders saying that they preposition food, well, if the food doesn't reach the people, you can have all the food you want. Some people have too much and others are receiving nothing. That's number one. In an emergency, you need food and water with the urgency of yesterday. You cannot just drop it one day and disappear. You have to keep going back every day. You need to adapt. You need to use the local resources like we do. Local food trucks, why not? Why? Because who better to feed locals than locals themselves, who know best? Food, if we start investing in ending food deserts and food swamps, food, if we start feeding every child breakfast and lunch in every school in America, 
food if we start buying from the local farmers so they can make a decent living wage living in the process of feeding our children. In the process, you hire local men and women that they are trained to be cooks that are employed by those school systems. In the process of spending a dollar to feed children, you are re-energizing the entire economy. When you fight food swamps and food deserts, that working mother of three that unfortunately because doesn't make it at the end of, of, of the month because the cost of living is above even what she can make working two jobs and they she receives food stamps she cannot even spend the money in her community because it's too poor because her community doesn't even have a market or a diner and she has to go far away from her community to buy food for their children what if all of a sudden we help her putting a market in that community that she can spend that money that the government is sending her way to help her until she moves into a better position all of a sudden that money that helps feed her family and herself is helping the local economy creating jobs bringing dignity you see food can be the solution in so many ways but we need to start thinking bigger believing in good policy understanding that good policy is good politics where 89 percent of americans believe that no american should ever be hungry something is bringing americans together again tell me what you eat i'll tell you who you are more than ever has a deeper You can hear that absolute passion in his voice. And Chef, it's your food that's saving lives with World Central Kitchen around the world. There you are. You're cooking for victims of disaster. Back in 2010, you were a huge name in the restaurant industry. You were on TV. You had books. What was it in you that said, I need to go into the chaos. I need to be there. I need to feed people. It's not like I created World Central Kitchen. It's like World Central Kitchen created itself. But I think arriving to D.C. and and going to a place called DC Central Kitchen, founded by a bartender called Robert Egger. On George Bush inauguration day, he went hotel to hotel picking up all the food that was untouched. B- brought it to a central kitchen, but became DC Central Kitchen, and began de- redistributing that food between the homeless population of DC. What he began doing was great, was saying, food waste is wrong. But everybody talks too much about food waste. What is wrong is wasting people's life. So he began giving hope to people, how bringing homeless out of the street, giving opportunity to ex-convicts that couldn't find jobs in any place. Those graduates of D.C. Central Kitchen in Washington who had gotten on their feet, Chef Andres would then hire them, and he would go to help out in D.C. Central Kitchen. And you were in D.C. at that time. And I were, was, 20, and, and were you was 24, 25. Were you looking at that and saying, wow, this works? One plate of food for hope, one plate of food for dignity, one plate of food to show that food is really at the heart. And 35 years later, I'm the chairman emeritus of that organization. I went there like one more volunteer, sharing what I knew with others when at the same time I was learning so many things about life of people that they had a lot to share, but the system was not giving them that opportunity to even have a voice in their own community. But he says early on, it was Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans that spurred him to act. And all of a sudden, I began seeing how in emergencies like Katrina, we got thousands of people of New Orleans from Low Nine with water everywhere in New Orleans trying to escape for to safety. And where the Superdome became that place where during days we saw the images, men and women were left alone without food, without water, in very, very bad conditions. Obviously, I saw that that we don't have a good emergency plan for food. It's not, and when something goes very wrong, 
everybody freezes. It's when I said, man, I cannot be in the comfort of my sofa anymore. When Haiti happened, I was in Cayman Islands. Haiti 2010, the earthquake. Hundreds of thousands of people died. Many lost their homes. I wanted to go because I wanted to learn how my profession, our profession, that fits the few could also be part of feeding the many. I was in New Orleans in the many weeks following Hurricane Katrina as we were covering that. And I remember when our teams finally got a little bit of food. It wasn't much. It was bread and peanut butter. The second I put peanut butter on that bread, little children coming up and saying, please, please. And what do you do? Well, out of your heart, you hand it to them. And then at the convention center, a little boy coming up and saying, when is the food coming? And I said, I don't know. The choppers were ahead. The military was there. Bodies were in the streets. But there was no food. That's the one thing they needed and the one thing that, that still wasn't there. But we see it over and over again since 2005. Every time you're on the ground, you're seeing that. I want to believe we are all getting better. I think Bolsendra Kitchen has helped a lot pushing everybody else to do better. We are doing it better. It still, it's a lot to do better. It's not an integrated food response. But in many ways, aren't you showing the federal government how to do it? Because you're able to do it. You're able to make food that the people actually want to eat. Yeah. You're yeah. able to get to rally everybody. Well, obviously, we need to remember that politicians and federal employees, they, they are no chefs. They are no cooks. They are not in the business of feeding people. So I, I don't say that with criticism. It's only that they're not prepared for that. And in politics, not only in America, but around the world, food seems is always an afterthought. So this is not about finger pointing or blaming anybody. What I'm doing is bringing light to an issue that is real. And we are not only bringing light with the speeches, we are with boots on the ground showing the way. So my dream is that not only in America, but around the world, emergency operations will be better. And I hope World Central Kitchen will be at the heart and center leading that, like we've been doing. Doing all of it takes an incredible amount of money, money that at times has been charged to Chef Andres' personal credit cards, believing in the mission he's kept going. Today, World Central Kitchen survives off donations and volunteers, and it's not only disaster areas. Much of the work that they've been doing to feed Americans was during the pandemic, when so many were out of work. Andres posting this at the time. So this is Chef Jose Andres. Uh, today's a bittersweet day. It's uh, bitter because over 100,000 uh, people uh, has lost uh, their lives uh, as today in American soil in the last few weeks alone. Sweet because the men and women of World Central Kitchen, we arrived over 10 million meals. When you start seeing the, the numbers we did during COVID, the numbers in Ukraine, Three million here, two million there, one million here, four million there. You know, before we know, we we will be reaching huge numbers. Uh, it's not something I'm proud of. Obviously, I'm not fighting hunger with this. But what Central Kitchen does is bringing relief in the worst moment. The great news is that in the worst moments of humanity, the best of humanity shows up. When people ask me why you keep going back, because now I feel I'm one more volunteer. The teams are getting every day more experience even still we are a young organization still we have young people that sometimes they've been only in one or two missions but then we have others that they've been in multiple hurricanes i gotta say you look really good and after puerto rico you were using your own money you were there for a very long time have you found a way to kind of streamline everything how do you how do you do it physically mentally you look great 
Well, I mean, now, obviously, uh, this was never about either person, but with the people. But as I said, like every organization, I remember Clara Barton, the founder of the Missing Soldiers Office, the woman that was working on the flying hospitals during the Civil War, and the woman that created American Red Cross. At the beginning, was her. <laughs> At the beginning, I was at the kitchen, we were very few. Uh, Jose and friends, and who shows up? But now it's beyond that. Now we have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, people that we don't even need to call sometimes, they show up on their own. And this gives me joy that Wilson Dragicin is almost becoming like the Batman signal, like we need you. And, we, and there we are. And by taking care of our teams is when now the teams really can take care of the people. And for me, I guess it's exactly the same. Obviously I have my wife, I have friends, I have team members that I love to be next to them and I know I hope they love to be next to me, and and maybe that's why you see me, you know, more fitted. I'm, 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 I feel healthier than ever. You look really good. I feel stronger than ever. I lost uh, 70 pounds in this pandemic. Uh, Congratulations! I was at 290 something, and I went down to 220. Uh, I'm, I think I'm more in the 230 something now, so I need to bring it back down. But but at the end, I do it because because I realize that if I want to keep helping others. I also need to make sure I, I, I help myself. It was so much fun getting to spend time with Chef Andres, and we'll hear a bit more from him in just a little while. But first, we travel now to Texas. There's something pretty amazing about food trucks. I know when we hear that there's a food truck festival going on, you go down, you don't know what kind of food you're going to find. A lot of it pretty high end now. The history of the Kitchen on Wheels goes back over a century as we hear from ABC's Jim Ryan in Dallas. <laughs> You could argue that the very first food trucks were the covered chuck wagons that sold food and water to cowboys, trappers, and loggers out on the American frontier. It was a simple menu then, typically beans, cured meat, coffee, and biscuits. Fast forward about 130 years to Southern California and the birthplace of the modern food truck. Food trucks were just coming and they were feeding guys that were, you know, in factories or construction sites. It was only a thing that you saw if you happened to be at one of these locations. And he should know he's... Matt Geller, I'm the CEO of the National Food Truck Association. He says the light bulb moment came during the Great Recession. In 2008, a guy named Roy Choi took a, a standard construction site food truck and he put a cuisine on it, Korean-Mexican fusion, that really spoke to Los Angelinos. And now in the third decade of the 21st century, in a five-acre park in downtown Dallas, it's lunchtime. Kids are playing in the grass, dog walkers are strolling alongside the fountain. And on the street, order number 46, order number 46. half a dozen food trucks compete with each other for the dining dollars of the families and the business people making their way into the park. I'm back here for the weekend and I came to get this specifically. It's just so good. I get the, the, the classic Euro, and it's just, it's excellent. Logan Hendricks and two of his friends are sitting at a small table on the grass. The trucks parked nearby offer Greek food, salads, halal offerings, ice cream, pizza, and a decidedly modern take on soul food. Instead of fried chicken, biscuits, and gravy. We pride ourselves on vegan fast food. It's not a slow cooked meal, it's fast food. And that's a diff different concept we haven't seen before. Jeremy Nelson's mother launched Soul Good in the face of a family tragedy. We have been in the business for, I want to say, eight years. Uh, we started this because of my brother who was sick and terminally ill. 
Uh, so we switched his diet to make him, you know, help him eat healthier foods, and that's how we thought of this concept. But the concept is only the beginning of the food truck journey, says Matt Geller of the National Food Truck Association. A brand new food truck in Texas you can get for 60000 or you can rent for, you know, 2000 or so. But a brand new food truck in California is about 200000 The Nelson family found ways to cut corners, literally. Well, we cut out the windows ourselves. We had to input the tables refrigerator, all of the healthy, you know, the equipment that we had to keep safe. We bought the chassis and built it from the inside up. The result is a bright orange truck with a service window in the side, a grill, cooler, and fire suppression equipment inside. The truck is painted with depictions of the sole good offerings, along with the company's contact information. Matt Geller says that's crucial. If I look at your truck and I don't know that you'll cater my birthday, then you have failed. Make sure you have all the relevant information, your phone number, all of these things, because you have this amazing opportunity to be advertising your business every single time you get behind the wheel. But designing an eye-catching truck and parking it in a high-traffic area like this downtown Dallas Park, that's only setting the table for potential customers. Getting people like Logan Hendricks and his friends Tony Rogers and Alec Dunsik to come back means providing convenience and quality. Hendricks says Greek Lover's food truck has found the key. It, like, it's really good. It's good every single time I get it. So there, there is a little bit of loyalty. It is comparable food as sitting in a restaurant. It is quick and prices probably about the same, maybe a little bit more depending on which food truck you go to. Convenience is a big part of it. It is really close for us to get here. And we used to walk a pretty fair distance to get some lunch somewhere. This place is really close. It's at the park, which is, you know, it's a really nice place to eat. Uh, the food is delicious, so, and it's, and given the price that I'm spending for it, it's just very easy for me to keep coming back here time and time again. The relative affordability of opening a diner on wheels offers a special kind of creative freedom, says Matt Geller. When you want to open up a restaurant and you have to get an investor to give you a million dollars to build it out and do all these things, the chef who has a vision, that vision is usually influenced by the money behind it. Launching a business with $60,000 instead of a million dollars means that a foodie with an idea can cook up pretty much anything. In the food truck space, whatever my creative vision for my menu is, that's the thing that ends up going to the public. So one of the reasons for the incredible growth was people wanted innovation in cuisine. They wanted to see different stuff. And moneyed interest no longer influenced what a restaurant was going to provide. Very often, a traditional restaurant might branch out with a food truck as a marketing tool to get customers into the brick-and-mortar diner. Jeremy Nelson's Soul Good did the opposite. So we started with the food truck. Now we have a standalone in, in Denton. You kind of went the other well, we, Yeah, we started with the food truck and we traveled to Houston, um, all across Texas, just getting out there and trying to get exposure and educate people on science at the same time on, on vegan foods. Eight years in, standing in the tiny kitchen and serving customers from the side of a truck, he says he and his family have no regrets. We have a great uh, ingredients here. The chef is, is full of love and, and support, so we get a lot of support from our people as well. So that's the best thing is, is engaging with people. The hardest part, I'd say, is just education. Just educating everybody on what it takes to be in here and, and serve the right food to them. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. Order number 46, order number 46. You're listening to Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Alex Stone. All right, so many of us will spend this Thanksgiving thinking about food, traditional family recipes, a new twist on old dishes. Once that's settled, there's another decision you have to make, and we head now to Kansas City where reporter E.J. Becker, fascinated by the world of fermented grape juice, 
has been poring over possible pours with a man who knows something about what goes into a bottle and into your glass. Have you ever met somebody who's good at what they do? Maybe the best at what they do, and they take themselves entirely too seriously? I am just a stupid geek who just thinks this is endlessly fascinating. Doug Frost is not one of those people. When I was 15 years old, my uncle poured me my first glass of wine. It was 1968 Louis Martini Special Select Pinot Noir. I'd, I'd, I'd never had wine before, and I was like, wow. This is really good. It fascinated me. And then somebody offered me a job in the wine business, and I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Tucked into a Kansas City area office building in the restaurant at 1900, Doug Frost's name is on the menu next to the title Beverage Boss. That title is unassuming, just like Doug. He's average height, round glasses, a full and well-groomed goatee. He's funny and charming. His relaxed nature and humility belie the fact that he is one of the world's most sought-after wine experts. The Master Sommelier was created because people would work in, in restaurants and they needed to be judged, as it were, to make sure that there were standards. And it was an outgrowth of an old, centuries-old guild, trade guild, called the Guild of Sommeliers. To become a Master Sommelier today, you need an insane amount of wine knowledge, great skills, tableside, and elite tasting ability. It takes five to seven years typically for somebody to get through and it's a blind tasting and a theory exam and a service exam where the, the way I describe it is just, you know, how would your afternoon go if you spent a couple of hours serving some really surly master sommeliers, lots of special wines. You would probably like your white wine or rosé wine to be at about 48 to 53 degrees. Oh, cold, 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 cold. That service exam made for one of the most memorable scenes from the documentary, Psalm. Gentlemen, I believe this may do it for you. Okay, let's do it. The blind tasting is no picnic either. Wine number three is a uh, clear, star-bright white wine. Six glasses of wine, three white, three red, and only 25 minutes to figure out what's in each glass in exhaustive detail. I think this wine is from France. This wine is from the Rhone Valley. This wine is from the Northern Rhone Valley. This is a Roussin Marsan blend from the, the Hill of Hermitage. If you're you and you walk in someplace, and I assume in many places you are recognizable, people ever want to come up and blind taste you because they want to see if they can stump you? Uh, it happened three nights ago. Up walks Cesar, who's like, oh, you guys are here. You guys are master sommeliers. You need to blind taste this wine. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Why do we have to be show to be? ponies? Exactly. The master sommelier exam has a roughly 1% to 2% pass rate, making it, as the movie calls it, perhaps the hardest exam you've never heard of. Fewer than 300 people have earned the title master sommelier. 600 people have gone into outer space. The MW, or the Master of Wine Program, is a broader exam, if you will, because it examines winemaking and vine growing and all sorts of things and marketing and everything like that. Fewer than 400 people have earned the title Master of Wine. Doug Frost is one of only four people ever to have achieved both the distinction of Master Sommelier and Master of Wine. Those diplomas and his commitment to never stop learning have taken him from work in restaurants and wine distribution early in his career to opportunities most of us didn't even know existed. For instance, ever had a glass of wine on a United Airlines flight? Chances are Doug picked that bottle for you. Just one of many wine and beverage consulting jobs that have come his way. 
Having spent so many years pouring wine out of bottles, he's now come full circle, working on what goes into bottles. I really um, am very happy that I'm getting to make wine. You know, the more you learn, the stupider you feel. And, and winemaking, man, will teach you that humility really fast. How did Echolands come to be? Echolands Winery is a project I started in 17. It started with a, a very random phone call from uh, one of the uh, sort of patriarchs of the Walla Walla Valley wine industry, a, a wonderful guy named Norm McKibben. And a lot of people in Walla Walla Valley who literally said, we've got your back, we're not gonna let you screw up. Even as he decided to try his hand at winemaking, he knew the popularity of wine would continue to ebb and flow. Generations typically don't want to drink what their parents drank because their parents aren't cool anymore. You know, when you're deciding what you're going to drink, you're going to you know, make it your own. And so there is this wave of beer being cool and then cocktails are cool and then maybe wine is cool and then beer is cool. And right now, you know, the perception is that wine is a boomer thing. Gen Xers or Gen Zers are not as interested, but I think all that changes. I think everything is in a cycle. But one thing that may not be cyclical in this master sommelier's life, picking the right bottle for turkey, stuffing, and sweet potatoes. My chief concern when it comes to wine at Thanksgiving is always going to be the same. Who's there? What do they want to drink? I just love Riesling at, at Thanksgiving dinner, both sweet and dry, mostly sweet. And we'll, because my family is, is who they are these days, I, we probably won't finish a single bottle on the table, and I'm okay with that. And once the leftovers are put away, and the family's gone home to sleep off the turkey hangover, Doug Frost will go back to what he does best, learning about wine and sharing that knowledge with others. For my part, right now in Walla Walla Valley, I just want to keep finding out what grapes can prosper there that, that nobody knows about yet, and, and maybe hopefully add to the legacy of Walla Walla Valley and, and what's possible there. I, I feel like I'm, I'm really fortunate, you know, with kids and grandkids and with the, the, the winery, I'm getting all the opportunity I need to. So now it's just pay attention to that, be mindful and thoughtful around that and, and try to do the best job I can with that. That's Master Sommelier Doug Frost with ABC's E.J. Becker in Kansas City. Thank you, E.J. So back here at the Grand Central Market in downtown L.A., I don't see a lot of wine, but the oysters are definitely flowing and people are really enjoying themselves. Quite a bit of beer here as well. Earlier, you heard from Chef Jose Andres talking about his incredible humanitarian work, going into disaster zones with his nonprofit World Central Kitchen, feeding those who have been impacted. Before I let the chef head back to Washington, I asked him how being a father of three daughters and a husband impacts the work he's doing feeding the world. Life never comes with instructions and sometimes obviously you learn from friends and others and role models that we all have, people we know or people we see in the distance. And before you know you become a, a husband and doesn't come with instructions, before you know you become a father and you look down and like doesn't come with instructions. But my instructions, they've been always my wife. She's been my wisdom in that. She's been my voice. Before I let you go, Chef, I've got to ask, when you're not in a disaster zone, what do you like to eat? What is, what is your favorite meal? Well, I like everything. Today we're talking here from uh, the Grand Central in downtown LA, not too far away from where I opened my last restaurants. And I'm, I've been enjoying here from Filipino food to, to great tacos, to, to, to great egg sandwiches. Oysters. I love Japan. I love Japanese food. I love sea urchin. Santa Barbara is one of my favorite places. But I love a lot of vegetables. That's why I love when I come to California because that's a big bounty of them. 
So me, I, I would say, I don't like to repeat, we only live once, is uh, hundreds of thousands of dishes, if not millions, is, is more dishes than the stars you can count probably on planet Earth. So if you count how many days I have left in my life, that I hope I live until I'm 100 and more. So I'm making sure that I don't repeat myself because then I can find more of this amazing diversity we have, even in a market like, like here in downtown LA, the diversity is huge. But imagine when you bring the world, it's never ending. So I want to make sure I eat as many dishes, as many ingredients from the hand of very talented people as I can before I move to my next food life. Chef, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Chef Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen, a man with a passion for food and for life, his work keeping communities alive, including right here in the U.S. Hope you're still hungry. There's lots more after this. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. ABC News Radio presents Let's Eat. Here's your host, Alex Stone. Hopefully by now the stress of this holiday is over. You've done the planning. You've done the shopping. Now it's about family and being together. This hour, we're going to talk about everything from whether organic food is really better for you to the craft beer craze in this country. Craft beer is everywhere. But first, we've been talking a lot about human food, but we also want to talk about pet food as well. If you have a dog you know, trying to figure out the best diet to feed your furry friend can be mind-boggling. There are grain-free foods, raw, freeze-dried. There's kibble. Can it really be a healthy part of your pup's life? Should you have custom food delivered for your dog or make it yourself? And do any of these rules apply on a holiday like Thanksgiving? ABC's Derry Albinger, a mom to three dogs, and boy, are they cute. She wanted to find out. Remember when dog food used to be dog food? 
A dog can get mighty hungry when he doesn't get his chuck wagon. Because dogs love the soft, meat-like chuck. When I was growing up, my dog Gretchen ate a lot of chuck wagon over the course of her 16 years, sometimes with a little of these mixed in. Kennel Ration's the only burger for dogs, government inspected for wholesomeness, the only one. My dog's better than yours. And there was never a time that me or anyone in my family might be tempted to share Gretchen's meals with her. That was then. This is now. You are what you eat. Our whole concept here is if it's good enough for us, it's good enough for your dog. That's Joe Avaye, brand ambassador for Just Food for Dogs, one of the many growing companies that makes food they say you would be more than happy to share with your pet. We sell human-grade food that's formulated by veterinarians. Essentially, it's real food for dogs but with all the vitamins that are required to make it a balanced diet and healthy for your dog. I visited their kitchen in New York City, and I got to watch them make some of it. Why do I need food like this for my dog? There's so many byproducts and other things that are not good and actually harmful for your dog, so you want to make sure that you're feeding real food. So you actually have a kitchen back here where you make the food. Yes. So what are we making back here? Chicken. Chicken? Chicken and white rice. Chicken liver and gizzards. We also have um, fresh uh, raw carrots, spinach. And then uh, later on, we're going to put in uh, Granny Smith apples. Into oh, wow. That sounds so good. I can tell you, it is good. I actually tasted it. Then again, I'm not exactly new to this game. You see, my husband's been making food for our three dogs for a few years now. In fact, the slow cooker is now exclusively theirs. And what my husband makes smells pretty darn good, too. He got into it after hearing a TED Talk by Rodney Habib. Dogs are awesome. Which drew some parallels between canine longevity and their diet. I think the thing that drove me uh, hard into that TED Talk would have been in the way that we perceive food today versus back then. And by back then, we could go back 50 years, 100 years. We can even go back 2,400 years ago where Aristotle and Socrates documented, you know, 2,400 years ago, breeds reached 14 to 15. And that was 2,400 years ago. Flash forward to today where science will tell you and marketing will tell you animals are living longer and healthier than before. We know more about animal nutrition. We know more about food and diet nutrition today than we ever did. Today's average lifespan of a dog, Banfield themselves, the popular hospitals all over North America, when they posted their pet health survey that they post yearly, the average lifespan of a dog is anywhere debatable between 10 to maybe 12 years old all across the board. Habib wrote the book The Forever Dog along with veterinarian Dr. Karen Shaw Becker. Dogs and cats, they don't choose the food. We choose the food for them. We choose everything for them. And marketers, of course, know it. So when you walk into those big aisles, wherever you buy your food, whether you support a local independent, which I recommend, or um, it, it doesn't matter. Wherever you go in to buy food, every single marketer that works for every single pet food manufacturer is going to show you why they, and show you and tell you with label claims and beautiful pictures, why their food is the best. And one of the biggest challenges for pet parents is they have no idea what they're looking at when they look at a label. And he says, this is a good example. If you look on the back of a label and you see the word salt, Anything that comes after salt is not really in the bag. According to the American Association of Feed Control Officials, you're not allowed to have any more than 1% salt. So when you look at that label, it basically tells you anything after salt is less than one percentage point. And then Habib says there's kibble. Kibble falls into the ultra-processed food category. Why? Because it has to go through an extruder. And Harvard University will tell you themselves that once foods have to go through extrusion, meaning if I take corn 
and I turn corn into corn chips, it has to go through an extruder. I have to change the shape. It has to go through like multiple processes to turn into the shape of a corn chip. If you look on the back of a bag of kibble and you look at all of those ingredients, how on earth do they turn into a round brown ball? They have to go through an extruder. So they are labeled as ultra processed foods. And with all the science today, everything will is leaning towards feeding your pet as much minimally processed foods as possible. But what if your pet's healthcare provider says kibble is an important part of their diet? Things are completely out of control. One of the things I hear people talk about kibble is you've, you've cooked all the nutrition out of it. We don't cook all the nutrition out of our food when we cook it. Dr. Andrew Flint is a veterinarian in Litchfield County, Connecticut, who actually still makes house calls. We talked about what he describes as the fresh pet food movement as I joined him on his rounds. A lot of the, the pet food stuff started back in 2005, 06, when there were some dogs that were going into kidney failure and they were unsure where it was coming from. And they did figure out finally it was something in the food. And that made us realize that the food chain, particularly for dogs, but even for us, you know, a lot of these stuff wasn't coming from the United States. And, and that's when a lot of these pet food companies started coming up. Like, uh, you know, Blue is one of the first ones and, you know, Taste of Wild, all these things. That That's kind of what started this whole thing. He says this is the most important thing. You want a board certified veterinary nutritionist on board because otherwise anybody can come up with a diet, but is it properly balanced? We have all the proper nutrients. And as a lot of us can forget, it isn't just what you eat, it's how much. Habib says this is the worst thing you can do. Leaving food out. A lot of people today in North America free feed their pets, meaning I go out, I pour the food in the bowl, and the dog or cats eat when they want to eat. And it's the same thing that holds true for humans. We're always told to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But, you know, I catch myself going to the refrigerator, grabbing like, you know, whatever I'm pulling out of there. And the dog and cat follow the same suit. A recent study came out by the Dog Longevity Project on 24,000 dogs, the largest study of its kind on feeding frequencies of animals. And what those study found was that if you leave those foods out all day, pouring food constantly in the bowl, allowing your, you know, especially your dog going back and forth to that bowl, you can increase nine different types of diseases from developing things like cancer, diabetes, liver disease, kidney issues. The risk ramps up nine specific diseases by allowing your dog to go back and forth to the food bowl all day. So good food in moderate amounts. I think I've heard that somewhere before. And Alvaye reminds us your dog's age matters too. For puppies, we have the chicken and white rice, the fish and sweet potatoes because there's higher phosphorus, higher calcium. That's good for bone development, brain activity for puppies. Older dogs, you know, we have like the lamb and brown rice. It's going to be good for aging kidneys and joints. Dr. Flint admits that's easier said than done for us and our pets. They don't need pumpkin pie and green bean casserole, which is my favorite. Um, they don't need any of that kind of stuff. That's where you have to be very careful because their pancreas is very sensitive to excess fat. So Alvaye says maybe try something like this. Venison, butternut squash, Brussels sprouts, cranberries. and It's a novel protein. It's, it's really good for dogs who have severe allergies. We also have lemon brown rice. Abby says you can also roast some white meat turkey without seasonings, make some plain sweet potatoes, and don't forget this seasonal side. Cranberries, according to scientists, improves 
brain function, and it can also ward off dementia. Now, we do know with dogs, the dog's risk of canine de dementia, it rises by more than 50% each year, research finds. So imagine you could prevent doggy dementia by sharing fresh cranberries with your dogs. He also has a suggestion for some of that leftover turkey that we always seem to have way too much of. If you're not lambasting it with things that shouldn't go on there, like onion powder and pre-made dressings and, and things that you can put on top of the turkey, if you're just making a good turkey at home, you can slice off some of those turkey pieces, put them in your dehydrator and make turkey jerky for your dogs or your cats. Because I mean, that's the pro those are the products that you're buying anyways in the grocery store. When you go in to buy, you know, dehydrated turkey strips, break off tiny little pieces of the jerky, break them into tiny pieces. And now you have training treats. Your dog or your cat will follow you all around the house. So share your turkey with your dog. So load up your plate with your Thanksgiving favorites and fill your pup's bowl with some healthy and maybe even life extending foods. And be thankful this year for man's and woman's best friend. That's right, honey. It's your first Thanksgiving. Daria Albinger, ABC News. How many hours have you spent at the grocery store in the last couple of days? Many of us will spend hours scouring store shelves this holiday season for what is supposed to be the gold standard in terms of food, organic. We often spend more for that label than the processed food we're used to eating. But is it worth it? Is it really better for you? ABC's Andy Field traveled to upstate New York to check out some organic farms and markets and one eight-year-old's kitchen. Take a step inside Jacob's Kitchen. What do you got there? Coconut sugar. Do you think it's organic? Yes. It says it on the package. You're not lying. Jacob Ollers may be one of the few eight-year-olds who's never chomped into a fast food burger or fries because his parents have told him it's junk. But is eating organic always better? Just blindly running down the grocery store aisle and picking out everything that says organic, that's a bad move. Gordon Sachs runs the Nine Miles East Organic Farm and Food Prep Company here in Saratoga Springs, New York, and admits, There's plenty of organic junk. They're organic gummy bears. And you shouldn't kid yourself that organic gummy bears are healthy. They're not. Gordon grows and prepares organic meals for health-conscious eaters from upstate New York to Boston and says that eliminating pesticides and preservatives change many clients' lives. We're seeing straight-up clinical reductions in A1C blood sugar among people with type 2 diabetes after they start eating our meals. So there's really something to this from a healthcare standpoint as well as from a flavor, taste, and convenience standpoint. This is because in most of the processed stuff, you've got the high fructose corn syrup and you've got all those additives that are probably raising your blood sugar. You're absolutely right. It's a combination of what our meals are and what our meals aren't that's really, we think, getting helping customers uh, manage these critical healthcare issues. But it doesn't fix everything. There's no magic ingredient in Nine Miles East Farm meals that cures diabetes. That would be awesome, but it's not true. What there is, is exactly what everybody knows that you're supposed to eat. Organic baby greens, whole grains, fresh vegetables, lean protein, real food. They try not to have anything with preservatives. Richard Frank runs Saratoga Springs' busy Four Seasons Natural Food Store, and he agrees with Gordon that a lot of what's marketed as healthy or organic food is just common sense. Look, you even have chips. Yeah. Of course. Organic chips. Yeah. And big companies have noticed there's a lot of money to be made slapping on that organic label. Many of the natural food companies are owned by major brands. It's back to buyer beware. And putting the coconut sugar in the bowl. 
Okay. I'm taking a chunk in my mouth. <laughs> Back in eight-year-old Jacob's kitchen, his dad, Josh, admits he wasn't always the organic purist. Yeah, absolutely not. I used to drink as much Pepsi as somebody could put in front of me. I used to think that Wendy's and Carl's Jr. were the high mark of the fast food industry. So no, I, I definitely was not always of this mindset. Josh saw the light in a high school health class. Remember, I was challenged. Can you go a month without eating any of this food? And I failed. It took me until I was 19 or 20 years old, and I actually went a full month, and all of a sudden the food started to not smell as good to me. And I did feel different. I had more energy. I wanted to get back into more sports. I, I felt more physical. So for me, it wasn't the uh, intellectual part of it or talking to people. It was actually feeling a difference. And the philosophy on Gordon Sachs Farm? There's a myth that you have to choose between healthy and delicious. And that is a straight up myth. That is not true. That was sold to us by a big food industry that makes a lot of money selling cheap junk. Josh Ollers made sure his son Jacob never knew another way. They even grow their own organic food. Oh, you grow your own cucumbers? Um, yeah, we did. We got the seeds with, from the farm. Did you plant them in your backyard? Well, we plant, have a little planter that, you know, cucumbers were growing all over the place. Mm -hmm. They didn't quite take over. The mint did take over all the other stuff, but we still got the cucumbers. So how does a lifelong processed food eater make the switch? Health food store owner Richard Frank says slowly. Get into cooking a little bit. You don't have to go crazy, but uh, probably assemble some of your food a little bit more than just all frozen, all packaged, all canned. Don't just throw everything out. It'll feel overwhelming and then you'll switch back. Nine miles east farm owner Gordon Sachs says, Everybody knows how they're supposed to eat. Of course they do. But do they do it? They don't do it because it's not easy. It's not convenient. It can be expensive. So we're trying nine miles east. We're trying to address those issues. Making that organic switch can take some time. But the farmer, the grocer, and parents say it's worth it. Jacob Ollers is off to a good start, but he's just eight years old. And more often than not, he's just interested in the chocolate. What do you call your chocolate snack during the lunchtime? Chocolate experiment. Oh, experiment. Why is it experiment? Every time I try to have a new chocolate, so it's like a different chocolate. I like to try a different one. Just as long as it's organic. Andy Field, ABC News, Saratoga Springs, New York. You're listening to Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's Alex Stone. This Thanksgiving, as families across the country sit down to a home-cooked meal with all the fixings, getting everything on the table is a struggle for some more than others. Nearly 24 million Americans live in a food desert where access to an affordable grocery store or fresh ingredients is limited. ABC's Derek Dennis spent the last several months talking to people in food deserts about the problem and some solutions to bring down the financial stress of this time of the year. $331. 53-year-old Robert Brown of Newark, New Jersey, makes the trek to this ShopRite supermarket in the heart of the state's largest city on a fixed income, without a car, two miles away from home. His cart filled with bag after bag of groceries, nothing extra. Oh, no. Oh, no. I couldn't carry this, right? I couldn't even, I, I would have tried to get on the bus with this. But it would be too much. 45-year-old Katrina Mosley does the same, only her trip to ShopRite, also two miles away but in a different direction, is her second of the day. I started at 8 o'clock this morning. I wasn't went to Walmart and got back home like 11.30. 
rest for a little bit. Caught the bus like, let me see what time it is, 3.09. I got here like 12 something. Take about 12, one something. Shop, I take my time in the store to go through stuff. And then I was just waiting for transportation to go home. That's a, a trek, right? You go yeah, to it is. different stores. And yeah, and me, I don't drive. Um, I have to call like family members that does drive. Um, they take me. Gas money is very expensive. No car, no other supermarket option nearby, depending on two different bus lines, then taxis, then relatives to pick her up. The entire day, her day off from work, spent just trying to feed her family of four, including a daughter with a baby on the way. So I go to Walmart to get the bulk of the meat because it lasts, you can make, uh, one of their packets of meat, you can make like two to three meals out of it. It all depends on how you do it. Las Vegas, Nevada, home of the gambling mecca known as the Strip, is the 25th most populated city in the U.S. It's in the desert and in more ways than one. It, it is very inconvenient if you have to go to three different stores just to, to get the prices that you wanted. Joy is a casino worker who lives just outside of Vegas in the greater Clark County area and says she not only commutes to work in one of the hotels on the Strip, she commutes just to get groceries. you have to take a taxi or a bus or do you drive? I drive. You drive. Mm -hmm. I met her at a Vaughn's supermarket on the outskirts of the city. She says it's about five miles from where she lives, one of a few stores she goes to just to get the most bang for her hard-earned buck. This this store has more expense, it's more expensive, but they have some sale items, so I go there for their sale items, then I go to another store because their price is lesser. And then I go to another store, so it depends on what I'm getting. What she's getting is the runaround because she lives in a food desert, defined by the USDA as an area where at least 33% of the population lives more than one mile from a supermarket or large grocery store, 10 miles in a rural area. A professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, published a study in 2020 and found there are 40 identified food deserts in the state, 16 of them in Clark County, and 10 are in Las Vegas proper. Food deserts in the desert. So the outskirts of Las Vegas, I know from colleagues who work out there, um, it actually is considered pretty rural. Uh, if you're not, like in Las Vegas proper, but like in the outskirts, in the suburbs, uh, it can be considered very rural. Dr. Imran Ali is an internist who says he sees the effects of food deserts every day, calling it a public health issue, hard to get fresh foods, creating a reliance on fast food for low-income people, the elderly, or the sedentary. We are actually now screening people when we admit them, we actually enter into our medical record, you know, if they have these kind of risk factors that put them at a higher risk for obesity, malnutrition, frankly. And it's not their fault. I mean, I don't blame them. It's just because they live in a zip code that makes it difficult for them to access nutritional food. Dr. Ali says for patients he's seeing who are diabetic with high blood pressure, high cholesterol and obesity, it's a matter of life and death. They're not getting enough blood flow to the vital organs and their cholesterol levels are through the roof. They have neglected their diet completely when it comes to processed foods and not watching their diabetes. In New Jersey, state officials are coming to the rescue. A food desert is traditionally defined in a fairly rigid way um, in that it means it's an area where there isn't access to 
fresh or healthy produce. Tara Colton is executive vice president for economic security for New Jersey's Economic Development Authority. She says addressing food deserts, a nationwide problem that studies show has been born out of structural racism, neighborhood redlining and disinvestment isn't as simple as you'd think. You can live next door to the most amazing farmer's market or supermarket, but if you can't afford to buy the food that's in there or they don't accept federal nutrition programs like SNAP, then it's it's inaccessible to you. Add to that limited or unreliable transportation options. You're in New Jersey and you have to take a bus that never shows up or you have to walk under two highway underpasses with kids in the rain. It may as well be 100 miles away. And then there's pricing, a definite factor for Robert Brown. I live like 20 blocks away, but we have a store downstairs where I live at. But they're so high, I come here and it's no need of me spending my money there. And I'm getting a little bit of nothing when I could come here and get everything I need. So what's a smart but geographically challenged shopper to do? New Jersey and other states are coming up with solutions. Governor Murphy last year signed the Food Desert Relief Act into law, and it essentially gives the New Jersey EDA uh, close to a quarter of a billion dollars, with a B, in resources to deploy to both try and address food insecurity and alleviate food deserts. The money is for tax breaks for stores that open in underserved areas, grants and loans and other assistance for stores of all kinds to operate in food deserts. I often say it isn't just about bringing people to food, it's about bringing food to people. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. They can go into a big building and buy it and put it in the trunk of a car or carry it on a bus, but you can also bring it to, to them more centrally. Think of community food pantries, or better yet, a $2 million pilot project in New Jersey that's become a $45 million state program that pays local restaurants to deliver ready-to-eat meals directly to those in need. Colton says dollar for dollar, it's a win. That one dollar you're spending is keeping the restaurant open, the workers employed, and is giving people who often can't access this kind of food a healthy, fresh, nutritious, homemade meal. But Katrina Mosley prefers to cook on her own. And despite her bi-weekly all-day odyssey to two different supermarkets to get the groceries she needs and can afford, she doesn't focus on feeling disenfranchised. Her family is her real focus. Those who I got to worry about. Mm-hmm. So this is what I do for them. Shop. Mm-hmm. Getting it done. Out the way. Family first. In a food desert. On Thanksgiving. And year round. Derek Dennis. ABC News. There has been a fascination with craft beer across the U.S. lately, but in one North Carolina city, the beer may have helped turn around its economy and spearhead its growth. ABC's Joy Piazza goes back to her native Winston-Salem, North Carolina, learns you can go home again, and when you do, you might find some good beer and good company. It's one of those picture-perfect autumn weekends in the southeast, 75 degrees and clear skies. At Incendiary Brewing in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, it seems as if many folks are taking advantage of the great weather. These are just like simple, lightweight bags that you can use throughout your day, especially like at Vendors like Donya Bradley line an expansive outdoor corridor of sorts that's a revamped relic of the city's days as a tobacco juggernaut. This space, now part of an area downtown called the Innovation Quarter, was all but forgotten just a few short years ago. 
But on this particular Sunday, folks are out supporting a charity event for breast cancer sponsored by the brewery. And just a short walk down the street, the Unbroken Circle, a multi-generational bluegrass band, plays at another charity event at another local brewery, Wiseman Beer. It's a snapshot of activity from one specific industry in a city of a little over 250,000 people. In Winston-Salem, there are about nine locally owned craft breweries in a roughly two-mile radius. As I observed all that was taking place, I couldn't help but be surprised myself. I can remember the days when venturing downtown was not an option. I mean, it was for a while. It was scary downtown. That's Jamie Bartholomus, the president of Foothills Brewing, the first local craft brewery in the city. Bartholomus already had a background in brewing and craft beer when he came to Winston-Salem from nearby Hickory. He says the demographics in Winston were just right. The Wake Forest and the hospitals, so there's some money and education, which thinks that are craft demographics. Foothills flagship brew pub opened in 2005, and since then they've added another location, an event space, and have even expanded into coffee roasting. A lot of brewers will come here, and people would say how much they love Winston because it's walkable and the breweries here are good. Mayor Alan Joins has been in office for over 20 years, and he says he remembers the early days when Foothills came to town. Joins credits downtown's success to an aggressive revitalization plan. We actually started a series of um, festivals that we, we held regularly to get people to come into the downtown area and see some of these new um, retail establishments, breweries, and some restaurants were beginning to slowly open up then. But it didn't come without its fair share of hiccups. Mayor Joins recounts initial conversations with Winston-Salem's business leaders about raising money for that first apartment project, the Nissan Building. I remember there was a meeting up at the Twin City Club of a group of business leaders and uh, locked the door and said, look, we got to make this thing happen if we're going to, and we aren't leaving here till we come up with $2 million. <laughs> According to the mayor, it was the city's support, funds raised with the private sector, and a loan forgiveness program that allowed small businesses to thrive. Soon, one after another, the breweries began to pop up. In 2018, Incendiary Brewing became the first business in the Innovation Quarter's revamped coal pit. Director of Taproom Operations, Chris Strauss. The trestles outside are just very iconic. When you see those in a picture, you know exactly where they are. Like, there's only one spot in Winston that could be that. Strauss grew up in nearby Davidson County and says her grandfather used to work in the same building where Incendiary is today. We were literally on the wrong side of the tracks. The only reason you came down here was you were up to no good or you were lost. She says now it's a prime space for families. It's funny how we're kind of a, a heavier metal sort of branding, but super kid-friendly. And that the clientele is varied and vibrant. It's nothing for 30 people show up and like throw down a company card. And The Wake Forest Med School is right across the street, so I know when I got a bunch of kids showing up in scrubs that they just like got out of a test or something and they're came to blow off some steam. Lesser Known Beer is one of the newer establishments in town. Co-owners Ryan Gramlich and William Loring moved to Winston-Salem from Virginia. And I think Winston... There aren't that many breweries here, and, and I do think that each one in town, for the most part, does have some specializations. Yeah, um, yeah. which is cool, which we like. Their aim, they say, is to be the neighborhood watering hole, the place to enjoy a lager-style beer with no blaring music, glaring TVs, or large events. Gramlick says they're inspired by the breweries they toured in Germany and the Czech Republic. My terrible sort of analogy is that, you know, khakis 
never really go out of style or jeans don't ever really go out of style. Loring and Gramlich say they use simple ingredients, have a quote, obsessive attention to detail, and try to educate their customers without coming across as too pretentious. People think that they don't like beer. Well, you probably haven't had a good beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like we get We've plenty seen of people that the dark lager is. I don't know, like dark like, beer. Okay, try this. Try oh, well, I like yours. Oh, well, then you do like dark beer. Right. You just have had bad dark Yes. They even have a box where customers are invited to put down their phones while they're there. There's no phone number for their tap room. And when they're open, Gramlich says all they do is put a sign out front. You know when the sign's out that we're open and it's not there when we're not open. A couple miles north. We intentionally put our logo really big on the, the side of the building uh, to kind of draw people's eye. Dan Rosso of Wiseman says they had to attract customers to an area of downtown that was underserved in the past. And at Fiddle and Fish, a stone's throw from Wiseman, Stuart Barnhart says sports is what attracts their patrons. We have a huge draw on Saturdays in the fall for football. I think that's unique to us. If you go to one of the other breweries, it's a different vibe on a Saturday afternoon. But it's Foothills that's the big fish in town. Its main brewing and distribution center hums like a well-oiled machine. Bartholomew says last year they produced 30,000 barrels and that Foothills is considered the second largest locally owned craft brewery in the state. But he also says that there is a spirit of collaboration between brewers. A local and statewide Brewers Guild has grown over the years. Brewers are naturally collaborative and like to talk about different beers they're making and hops and you know, I tried this, I didn't like it, I tried this, I did. Back at the charity event at Incendiary, Nicole Walters says she welcomes this community as both a vendor and a patron. It's just a really chill atmosphere and everybody seems to have no problem just picking up with conversation. When asked whether the craft beer market in Winston-Salem is oversaturated, Strauss and Rosso say they don't think so. I don't think we're anywhere near our maps yet. Us specifically, or this town, or the entire nation. Good beer will survive. At Fiddle and Fish, Barnhart agrees and says if one business does well, they all do well. I think we kind of view it as a rising tide raises all ships. Bartholomew says he hopes that the beer scene in Winston-Salem continues to thrive. But everybody has their own way to do it. Yeah, I think most of the breweries here in Winston are doing a good job. According to Mayor Allen Joins, there'll be another $200 million of investment over the next few years for a second phase of development at the Innovation Quarter. So when I asked folks whether it was the beer that saved Winston-Salem's economy, the answers varied. Some said yes, others said they weren't entirely sure. Mayor Joyne says it could have been a lucky series of events. It was kind of chicken and egg. <laughs> we had a couple of craft breweries that opened up early, like Foothills, and were very successful. And then I think that was a little bit of a way that we got more residential to happen. And then as more residential happened, we had more craft breweries coming in. So it's just a continual feeding off of each other, in my opinion. Whatever the reason, many folks say they feel like they're getting the best of both worlds. You can be anywhere in town in 15 minutes. Yeah. But there's the amenities of a large city, but it's still, you know, we're in this cool little neighborhood. Yeah. And you, you get a place like this, you see a lot of music. There's a lot of unique authenticity here that it's tough to beat. And you know, I'm, I'm a true North Carolinian, die hard, but Winston-Salem is something special within this state. One of the most charming things about it is you have these big city amenities. You're getting that relaxation, you're getting development, you're getting new cultures, you're getting all types of new experiences here uh, at an affordable price. Joy Piazza, ABC News, Winston-Salem, North Carolina.
Lots more when Let's Eat returns after this. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. We're taking you on a food and drink journey from coast to coast. It's Let's Eat from ABC News Radio. Here's a man who always goes back for seconds, ABC's Alex Stone. There's nothing better than some turkey, maybe some ham, and oh, those leftovers, so good the next day. Make a sandwich out of it. This time of the year, it's all about coming together. And this hour, we're going to talk about that experience at the dinner table. How do you avoid overindulging? Can you really diet at this time of the year? And we're going to join families who are welcoming in Ukrainian refugees this Thanksgiving. But first, let's go right to the table. So that turkey or ham on your Thanksgiving table probably came from a real turkey or pig, unless you're eating tofu turkey. But one day, maybe in the next couple of years, that real turkey meat might be grown in a lab. It's a next frontier in food science, meat that doesn't require the death of an animal. ABC's Jason Nathanson got a taste from some of the companies on the cutting edge. Yeah, that's right, Alex. Just for you. I ate chicken, pork, and salmon that was never alive. It was grown in a lab in the San Francisco Bay Area. Let's go, let's go for a walk. All right. Where are we going for a walk to? Welcome to Good Meats Pilot Plant. In Alameda, California, just across the bay from San Francisco, sits the headquarters of Eat Just, a modern black glass and steel building in an office park where they're growing chicken. Not chickens, but chicken in bioreactors. The bioreactors are stainless steel tanks where you feed the chicken cells a mixture of nutrients, vitamins, and growth solution. They grow, proliferate, reproduce, and that's really how we make the cultivated meat. Pete Serpak is giving me a tour of this massive production facility that's still being built. We believe the bioreactors are the biggest of their kind in the country. He's in charge of the facility that will hopefully, someday soon, grow chicken from cells for people across the country to eat. Uh, there's different ways to grow the chicken cells. Which way do you guys use? I think we can't talk about that. <laughs> but Josh Tetrick can. Joshua Tetrick, co-founder and CEO, Eat Just. This is his company. Um, it's called cultivated meat or cultured meat and... Um, not lab-grown meat. Not lab-grown meat now. He and others describe the process as similar to making beer or bread, but instead of yeast, they use chicken cells, taken in a way that doesn't kill the chicken. Those cells are put in liquid, which feeds them. They multiply, bond together, and eventually, chicken. This is not a meat alternative. This is a different process of making meat. When most people think of a vegan, Josh Tetrick isn't the first person that would come to mind. He looks like he would break your wrist in an arm wrestling contest. He has a tree trunk for a neck. When he tells me he had dreams of playing in the NFL, I'm not surprised. This Alabama boy does not look like a poster child for getting rid of factory farming. I miss bacon in all of its forms. I miss fried chicken. I miss these chicken fingers I used to get in Alabama. That and I if he has his way, he won't have to miss those things. His company will just grow them. The only reason we're doing this is because I think most people can acknowledge that 
there's a problem with meat today. About a third of our world today is dedicated to planting soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. You know, the animals are not always treated the best. Our goal here is not to provide a nice little option to people. Our goal here is to replace the majority of meat production in the world, which is not coming from idyllic family farms with a red barn. Right. That's a fantasy that we have in our head, yeah. or it's a story that we tell ourselves. Um, our goal is to replace the conventional form of animal agriculture uh, that dominates meat production today, a system that most people want to knowingly ignore, a system that just doesn't work for the world that I think we all want to live in. Josh Tetrick's goal rather ambitious. The guys behind Wild Type, a company focused on cultivated salmon, not so much. To be honest, I think it's a little naive to think that we can replace, just because of the volumes alone. Meat is something like 323 million tons per year, if you include beef, chicken, pork, lamb, and everything else. That is just a staggering amount of production capacity. Right? Justin Kolbeck like, is the co-founder of Wild Type, a seafood startup in an industrial building in San Francisco, not far from Oracle Park where the Giants play. Arya Elfenbein is his co-founder. I think this is a uh, pressure valve, you know, this is something that provides another opportunity to just let the oceans recover a bit. They founded um, Wild Type after learning about all the problems that come with catching and farming fish. Let's create a third option that is sustainable, that's just as nutritious, that tastes just as good, but doesn't have mercury and microplastics and antibiotics and makes this choice for parents like me really easy. And their salmon is made to be eaten in all the ways you would eat salmon, even raw, which is mostly how they serve it at their tasting parties. I have this indelible image burned into my memory now of this very visibly pregnant woman chowing down on our sushi, right? <laughs> because she can't have regular sushi. Yeah, exactly. That right there is the future, right? Where like, we don't have to worry about the contamination anymore, it's gone. And like 20 years from now, we're gonna look back and be like, oh my God, people got mercury poisoned? <laughs> It's going to feel like asbestos or like lead paint, right? right? It's like, right. why the hell did we do that? Yeah. Back across the bay in Berkeley. One of our major products is an Italian sausage, like a fresh Italian sausage, where it has mostly plant ingredients. Um, and we use the cells to give that experience of pork. So kind Curtis of Luckett is one of the scientists at New Age Eats, where they're making lab-grown pork. We prefer not to be talking about lab-grown, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's also a little bit of Frankenstein or sort of it scares, it scares folks a little bit. What, what do we, what, what's the official term now? Cell cultured or, or cultivated uh, meat. And Kati Karatki is schooling me in the new language of this new industry because she's the chief marketing and strategy officer. You know, at the end of the day, uh, we have to feed a population, what is it, 9.8 billion, 10 billion people um, in the not-too-distant future. And we're trying to figure out a way to do it in a more sustainable manner. And then I think, you know, there's sort of the animal, you know, rights, um, inhumane, you know, side of things where, um, again, if you can make it in a better way, just as delicious, why, why wouldn't you? And that's the question I'm guessing you're all waiting to have answered. Is it just as delicious? So... Let's dig in. This is our sausage. So I think earlier I introduced myself. Yes. I am the resident chef here. My name is Jay Devonovich. And this is our original seasoned sausage, and it may remain, remind you of some Italian flavors. I started with the New Age Eats Italian sausage, and their approach is to mix their cultivated pork with some plant-based material. So if you're familiar with a vegan sausage alternative, it's like a combination of that and a real sausage. So it looks like a sausage. Yeah. It looks like what you would expect. We're starting a, strong, right? A sausage <laughs> to look like. Yes, absolutely. 
It smells like a sausage. Good. <laughs> it is a sausage. It is, it is. Here we go. So the texture feels very sausage-like. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got like juices and everything. I mean, you know, this is feels like a sausage experience. All right, here we go. Wow. That's surprising because, I mean, I don't know what I really expected. I expected maybe something to be different, mm. but that's not what you're trying to make. You're trying to make something that's similar to the experience that everybody has when they eat a sausage. It's good. Good. It's, it's good. It's got flavor. It's got some heat to it. Texture-wise, I think that's what some people might be wary of or mm. curious about. Yep. And the texture is just like, it's a little bit more plant sausage than maybe yep. a regular sausage, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a mix between both of them. It's good, I'm gonna have a second bite, not because we're doing radio, <laughs> because I like it. Awesome. If you were making a Sunday gravy with your Italian grandma, I don't know if the sausage would quite be a suitable substitute, but for a midweek meal, it would absolutely work. And I think most people feel that way when they consume meat, they want the experience, but they don't they don't necessarily crave an animal being slaughtered to have that experience. In fact, it's, if they think about it and ideate on that, it's a negative aspect. They enjoy their food less. And so the idea is that we're just trying to do this in a better way. Yeah. Back over at Wild Type, the salmon, there's no room for error. Because I was eating it raw, sushi style. They couldn't hide behind cooking techniques or seasoning. It had to sink or swim okay. on its own. Because they have it in a, in a roll here that you would have in a, in a restaurant with avocado, some crispy onions on there. Um, and I have extracted the actual salmon itself, which looks, I mean, identical to salmon. It's a little, maybe, maybe a little more jiggly. All right, here we go. I'm gonna take a little bite. Wow, texture-wise, that's just like salmon. I'm very surprised. And taste-wise, very similar as well. You getting the right level of fattiness that you like in your fish? There is. It feels to me like texture would be the hardest thing to get right. Correct me if I'm wrong. What's harder, what's, taste or texture? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and then back to Alameda at Eat Just, Chris Jones, who is a trained chef and also VP of product development, made me a special Thanksgiving version of their chicken. Dish. We kept it super plain. All we did was grill the chicken. Um, this is a fairly large portion size, mashed potatoes, some charred broccolini, some mushrooms, and then of course, okay, I've pour some gravy on here for you. Please. I'm cutting into the chicken piece, right? That's what we're calling this. It has grill marks on it. It looks like a piece of chicken. Tastes like chicken. It's a high compliment, I'll take it. It, ha <laughs> it has a very, a very similar consistency to chicken. Much more so than anything that you would have had previously in terms of a vegetarian or a vegan option. It's denser, right? It gets, it gets closer to chicken in its denseness and fibrousness? Yeah. Is that right? Yep. And you can actually see, if you look at it, kind of like thigh meat, especially on the other side, you can see it here, you can see the, how it breaks apart. Oh, right. Like, like you would actually see. Like shreds and strands. Exactly. I wish I could share it with you, but none of the stuff I tried has been approved by regulators. Though just days ago, another U.S. company was cleared for the first time by the FDA. It's not selling yet, though Josh Tetrick's Eat Just Chicken is for sale in Singapore. The first approved market in the world to sell cultivated meat. They started in 2020. And uh, it's been going really well. Very small volumes. Yeah. But what do, what do, when we say small volumes, like what are we talking in, about? In the less than 5,000 pounds in a single year. Okay. So very small volumes. Um, but it's selling. Um, and people, people like it. The most common uh, reaction we get is, 
This tastes like chicken. And it'll be years before any of these companies are profitable. Eat Just has raised $250 million, $120 million for Wild Type, and over $30 million for pork producers New Age. But these founders, like Wild Type's Justin Kolbeck, will tell you it's not about the money. It's about saving the world. And saving the animals. I am so motivated that by the time my kids are graduating high school, they don't have to think about this anymore. We've got stuff on track and they can f fix other problems. Um, I think we can do that in our professional lifetimes here if we hustle and we hurry. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, San Francisco. Now we can't talk about all this food and delicious treats, mm, extra pumpkin pie, whipped cream on top, filling our tables, and let's be honest, filling our bellies this holiday season without at least considering what it means for our overall health, right? So to break down some diet myths and hear about the do's and don'ts, ABC Sherry Preston sits down with our chief health and medical editor, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, who in addition to being an OBGYN, also happens to be a certified nutritionist. Is there any single one thing that if you were to say to people about food, what they eat, what they put in their bodies, what's most important? I'm going to tie two things for the single two most important things, which is there is no one perfect diet for everyone despite the marketing and fads that we see uh, all the time, the latest, greatest, this is the diet I don't believe that, and I don't think the data supports that, and my personal and professional experience doesn't support that. Uh, the other thing that I think would be tied for importance is ideally we need to eat less, and we all need to eat better. I have heard from a lot of people that the more colorful your diet is, the better it can be when it comes to natural foods. Explain a little bit more about that. Well, you hit the nail right on the head when you said natural foods are naturally colorful. So when when nutritionists and you know people like myself say you want to put a lot of color on your plate, you want to eat a colorful array of foods, we are, again, referring to natural colors and colors that you naturally find in nature, not psychedelic colors that are just, you know, they look like they have a filter on them because they're so vibrant or, you know, so unique or distinctive. Listen, it's a, it's a kind of easy, mindless way to eat well, right? But I do think it's important to understand that what comes with those colors usually means more micronutrients, more vitamins, more fiber, less chemical processing. Is there a recommended daily amount of calories? Well, again, you're asking all of the million-dollar questions because if you look at a nutritional profile, it will say the following is based on a 2,000-calorie-per-day diet. 2,000 calories a day is so arbitrary because it presumes a number of things, a certain size and weight of an individual, a certain activity level, usually health and, and absence of illness. There are very few people, as we know in our society today, who fit perfectly in any category that these recommendations were intended to fit. That's why there are a lot of people, myself included, that when you look at those percentages on any label and then you have to say, oh, well, hold on. This is based on a 2,000 calorie per day diet. You know, if you are a small person or an elderly person, you're not eating 2,000 calories a day or you shouldn't be anyway. And then there are some people 
who are eating more than 2,000 calories a day and should be. So um, if, if I were in charge, thankfully I'm not, of those labels, that would probably be the first thing I would get rid of. Why do people insist on eating things they know they shouldn't. So what I love about that question is it brings up this concept of how our brain and our hardwiring in terms of our behaviors and our hunger cues, our satiety cues, our food preferences, likes and dislikes, how that affects our behavior is an incredibly complicated phenomenon. There are scientists who literally devote their entire careers to studying this. And a lot of what we've learned about this, actually, we've learned from animals because an animal will go back to something that will make it sick, but it doesn't connect the dots on that. Some people do that. Some people don't. If you've ever had um, a foodborne illness that's made you sick, a lot of times people will say, well, I once got sick eating clams. I can't touch them anymore. I personally am, am one of those people in that category. Um, but it doesn't always work that way. So uh, a lot of us, whether it's an extreme example, like you're, you know, why did I do that? I just, I know that it doesn't agree with me or I pay the price the next day, but it tastes so good. And, you know, from from the eyes to the fork to the mouth, <laughs> That message doesn't get through. So we've got Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas. We've got Hanukkah. We've got all kinds of events. When you know that that food is going to be there and you're going to be tempted to overeat and overdrink, and maybe you should just say, I'm just going to give myself a break and let me do it. But, you know, sometimes we even that, we, we just go too far. I am a big believer, Sherry, in saying on those special occasions, worry about the other 364 days a year. Don't worry so much about that one day because if you're, quote, unquote, doing it right those other days, one or two days here or there are literally not going to derail anyone. Um, and I think that our mindset and that uh, enjoyment that we get from gathering with our friends and our families and celebrating whatever it is, a holiday or a special occasion, um, that's worth it and that's meaningful. We've been talking a lot about food. Let's talk about what drinks we put in our mouth. I know you're a big proponent of doing a dry month. Mm -hmm. And why is that something that you see is so beneficial to your health, just laying off alcohol for a certain amount of time? Well, first of all, we should start by saying that does not apply to people with uh, alcohol dependence or abuse conditions where they're trying a, a month of sobriety for really for the sake of saving their lives or for sobriety. Mm -hmm. So take that group out and then talk about just kind of the – it's called the sober curious movement or it's just become so popular in the last five to ten years here. By the way, apparently it's always been popular in the UK. They tend to do this every January. Um, but here I think it really started in the health and wellness kind of – enclave where people are always looking for challenges um, for their own health and wellness practices. And that includes, of course, not only what we eat, but what we drink. And, you know, I tried this myself and I was literally curious using myself as a science experiment. How would I feel? Would I find it easy? Would I find it hard? You know, would I be bored? Would I find it better? Um, and it was fascinating. And so it is a practice that I've started doing now every year. It definitely helps to do it with a, a friend or a relative just so that you're not the only one because it makes you realize how much a part of our culture and society alcohol is. And look, from a health standpoint, in my doctor world, 
you know, the negative effects of alcohol are crystal clear and they're not controversial. You know, I'm still a believer as a doctor and a nutritionist that most things in moderation are fine and and it's a holistic balance. Um, But there's really not a lot in the, gosh, this is really good for me column. And there's a lot in the, this is probably not good for me column. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason why people are are trying these dry months. Give us the, the um, guidelines again for women and men when it comes to drinks. Well, the interesting thing is if you look at all of the medical literature about the effects of alcohol on our health, they use, for women, seven servings a week. I'm going to come back to that. And for men, 14 servings a week as the cutoff for what's considered to be moderate alcohol consumption. Now, here's where it gets complicated and a little problematic for the vast majority of people. A serving of wine is considered to be five ounces. Sherry, when is the last time you ever looked at a wine glass with five ounces and didn't think to yourself, is that half gone? Or if you sat down at a restaurant or a bar and ordered a glass of wine and they brought you five ounces, you would say, I'm not paying for this. This is almost nothing. Part of the reason is that our supersized society, we're just used to bigger portions. The glasses are bigger because they look cool and they're nice, <laughs> you know. So the, a big glass and five ounces doesn't really look like much. So the reality, when you hear a serving, you might actually be thinking nine, ten ounces. So now all of a sudden, if you're my patient and I say to you, tell me about your alcohol consumption and you go, ah, you know, I have a, a glass of wine with dinner. Very common answer, right? Except that glass may have 10 ounces instead of five. So now you're not at seven servings a week. You're at 14 without even realizing it. A serving of hard alcohol, 1.5 ounces. You have to be aware of what qualifies as a serving. And then when you do the math, it is very, very easy for women to be way over seven servings a week. And for men, even easier to be over 14 servings a week. And that's where the curves change in terms of health outcomes, higher risk of breast cancer, higher risk of uh, neurocognitive issues, higher risk of esophageal cancer and other types of cancers. And we're not even talking about the empty calories and, and weight gain there. So I think it's really, really important. Do this experiment in your kitchen like a science experiment. Get out a measuring cup. Fill it with five ounces of water, put it into the glass that you would drink your wine in, and see what it looks like. Because I promise you, it's way less than you think. And that's the math that we have to do if we want to be, you know, in keeping with what the medical endpoints are. Dr. Jen Ashton, our chief medical correspondent here at ABC News. Thank you. Thanks, Sherry. As we gather around with friends and family this Thanksgiving, many immigrants here in the U.S. will be experiencing this very American holiday for the first time, including Ukrainians who had to flee their homes due to Russian aggression. Some are being hosted by American families. ABC's Michelle Franzen introduces us to a family adjusting to a life of new traditions. On a fall night in Darien, Connecticut, Susan Helms is serving up dinner at her home, pulling pockets of steam-stuffed cabbage out of a pot. Shall we go get our plates and get our halupki? Yeah. Okay. So Ludmilla was working late last night, these halupki, very... A Ukrainian dish and one of the traditions Ludmilla and her family find comfort in after being forced to flee their home in western Ukraine when Russian attacks began. It's like, am I saying halupki? 
Susan practices Ukrainian, and Ludmilla tries out some of her English. What's in it? Cabbage with uh, rice, with meat, and boiled. The way she folds the, um, the cabbage leaves around the ground meat and very finely diced vegetables, and um, I think it's the meat might be a ground pork. And uh, it just takes a lot of skill. to. She wraps them up very tightly like little presents. <laughs> Susan and her husband Ted opened up their home to Ludmilla, her husband Volodia, and their three children, Yulia, Dimitro, and Veronica. So since the family's been here, we all share uh, responsibilities in terms of uh, cooking. Sometimes Susan, uh, uh, Ludmilla, we have Ukrainian food, American food. Um, Belody and I, we just uh, we just eat and show up. Uh, I was going to ask. Well, he does. The, he does. I, I will say he does all the cleanup. The Stepnik family arrived in August and are still settling in. Ted says it's been a big change for him and Susan too, who were empty nesters. I just enjoy uh, their company and being part of it and knowing that, uh, in some small way, we've contributed to their well-being over the long term. Anybody that wants sour cream. Around the dinner table, the spirit of thanks and giving, along with conversation. How about you, Veronica? How was your day at school today? Good. (laughs) And laughter. Susan says when the war began, she was determined to do something and through her search was able to find relatives in Ukraine and decided to sponsor them to come to the U.S. She and Volodia connected on Facebook. I had heard stories of the Ukrainians leaving. And I I felt terrible that at the beginning of the war, so many civilians had been killed. And at that time, there was bombing all over the country. And I heard that in Poland, every Pole that had an extra room took a Ukrainian in. And I thought, what a wonderful thing. And I have three bedrooms that were empty. And I started looking on Facebook. Under Ukraine's martial law exemption, men who are raising three children or more can receive a deferment and leave the country. Melodia says he made the decision to go. Yulia translates for him, saying the family first fled to Poland before connecting with Susan. Okay, welcome. And getting the green light to come to the U.S. He said that, uh, of course, he is missing his family in Ukraine and he is worried about everything, but the safety of his children's are is the main thing now. Susan sponsored the Stepniks through the Biden administration's initiative, Uniting for Ukraine. American-based citizens can financially sponsor displaced Ukrainians who are still outside the U.S. They apply to receive a temporary two-year humanitarian live and work visa and go through a vetting process. The government says the U.S. has received more than 100,000 Ukrainians in a matter of months. Roughly half have arrived through sponsorships. Kathy Shepard is the Ukrainian program manager with IRIS, the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services nonprofit agency in Connecticut that helps to resettle immigrants. Because they're coming from some pretty, there's some pretty horrific stories. It's pretty tragic and they're leaving everything they know to come to a country where many of them don't even know the language. The go-between for sponsors like Susan navigating the government and benefits paperwork process. Susan's honestly amazing that she has done all of this on her own, uh, but we strongly encourage people to consider doing sponsor circles um, and learning more about that if they want to sponsor. Shepard says Americans have opened their homes and hearts to Ukrainians, and it takes on even more meaning around the holidays. Thanksgiving 
obviously is a time for us all to be thankful for what we have. And um, and it's not a tradition that's Ukrainian, obviously, so they get to experience another part of our culture. But I think it's part of our culture where we um, where we are at our at our best. The culture shock is real. Susan says once the family arrived in August, the kids were enrolled in school right away. Say, oh, I don't know if I need Yulia. She she had um, she had good English skills when she came, and they've gotten even much better. And they've all learned very quickly. Julia is 17, and in her last year of high school... <laughs> Everyone wants to go to America. Everyone wants to live in America. but And it calls American dream. I didn't have this dream, and I didn't move there because I wanted. So, yeah, that was difficult. But then you get used to it, and everything is okay. So before moving to the USA, I was so scared. I didn't want to move. But I just knew that it will not be so bad because I had this experience in Poland. Her brother Dimitro, or Dimo, and younger sister Veronica are in middle school and have already celebrated their birthdays here in the U.S. All say they are finding peace, something they haven't felt since leaving their home. But they still miss everything and everyone they left behind. He said that the most he's missing our pets, his friends, our roads in our city, our school, and things like that. Polodia and Ludmilla say they are trying to make the best life they can for their children and are grateful they could come to America. <laughs> yeah, he was just hoping that God will help him and it happened that we are here. <laughs> So she said that she felt this peace from the first day being here, especially in this town, because this town is so quiet, peaceful, and everyone is so nice. They're gathering around the table for their first Thanksgiving holiday. Susan says she's explained the American tradition. Just a show of gratitude and a, a moment to stop and just to remember how really lucky and blessed we are. And like every Thanksgiving table, there'll be some strange foods, like sweet potato, marshmallow, casserole. But they're already getting used to trying new foods. Some are a hit. Yeah, hamburger, burger. Grill? Grill, grill, yes, grill. Grill very nice. American food better. Other American favorites have fallen flat. I think chili. Chili was so strange. Yeah. Susan says the most important part about the holidays will be sharing the mix of traditions and cultures. You know, we laugh about the day we maybe we're tasting a different food, either my pot roast or their pierogi, or you know, we discuss this and try to represent a, a normal coming together. Uh, kind of a new sort of blended family. Together, Yulia says, at a time when so many in her war-torn country and elsewhere cannot. I'm just, I'm thankful for, to all of people around me, to Susan and Ted, to everyone. Because, you know, um, you came to another country to the strangers, in the strangers' house. And now when we are having these meals, I just feel this love, this warm atmosphere when you know that everyone loves you, you love everyone. I don't know, it's just, it's something that you can't describe, you know. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Alex? And Michelle, she only recently came to the U.S., but already she has Thanksgiving down, what it's all about, families, food, and love. 
For many families, this is the first Thanksgiving in years in which everybody can come to the table without the overwhelming worry of the pandemic. Grandmas are finally back together with their grandchildren playing and hugging, uncles are making jokes, and there's a table full of food. We truly hope you enjoy your holiday, and thanks for listening. Let's Eat was presented by ABC's Alex Stone and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.